Well, you know, it's still Advent because Christmas isn't here yet. And I don't know who plans these dates, but Christmas has been falling on strange dates lately. We are going to celebrate Christmas kind of today and kind of on Christmas Eve, and then you have your families to celebrate it with on Christmas Day, followed by a Sunday morning. So I'm looking forward to Christmas, and I hope you are as well. In leading up to this time, we've been doing our tradition of themes for Advent. The first Sunday, I preached on hope. The second Sunday of Advent on peace. The third last week on joy. And today we're talking about love. And the greatest display of God's love is seen in his provision of a Savior for the world. And Christmas is a time that we set aside to remember, to marvel, and rejoice over this beyond words act of love that is displayed in God sending his Son. In Luke 2.11, we read, For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. In 1 John 4.14, we read, We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. These two verses are packed with meaning, especially as we near Christmas and the celebration of the birth of of the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. That's pretty broad when you say the Savior of the world. That cuts across all the other religions, you know. It makes it very, very uh, distinct and uh, very unique in all the other religions of the world. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. He was the hope of the people of God throughout the Old Testament, and ever since the first blush of the gospel that I talked about last week in Genesis 3.15, where God's word to the serpent after Adam and Eve's sin in the garden, he said this, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he will bruise you on the head, and you will bruise him on on the heel. Or how the NIV translates it, a meaning-based translation rather than a word-for-word translation. It says this, He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. It brings out the meaning of the words used in Genesis 3.15. The idea here is that Satan, that old serpent, will strike the heel of the woman's seed, Jesus Christ, a wound but not a mortal one at the cross, But the woman's seed will crush his head, which is a mortal blow. Christ is victorious. And since that time, God's people anticipated the arrival of the one who would crush the vile enemy's head. I'll never forget teaching the Taliabo people who had never even heard of God, let alone Jesus Christ. And beginning in Genesis and working all the way through the Old Testament narratives to the birth of Jesus Christ. They, too, like the Old Testament saints, from Genesis 3.15, were waiting for the Deliverer. They were waiting for him, 
They had no idea that he had been born, but they listened to what they called the story each week as we taught and waited with anticipation. God's people waited for that anointed one, the one they called Messiah. That's what the Old Testament word meant, Messiah, the anointed one. And anointed means appointed one for a special service. And so Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one. He identified himself as such in Luke 4, 21, where he says after he had read a portion from Isaiah 61 that described the work of Messiah, he said this, today this scripture has, present tense, been fulfilled in your hearing. Here I am. He might as well just said that, because that's exactly what he meant. Here I am. Messiah is here. What are the implications of those two verses that we read? For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. What are the implications? In them we clearly see the love of God shown to our sin-riddled world as we understand at least six implications. I'm sure there are many, many more. But we're going to look at six of them today. Number one, that the world needs a Savior. If a Savior was sent, then the world needed a Savior. Number two, that Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world. Number three, the love God displayed in sending Jesus was part of his plan. There is an eternal plan that was set in motion before the foundation of the world. Number four, Jesus is God's gift to us, even as we are the Father's gift to Jesus. Number five, God, a gift is not a gift if it's not received. And finally, six, receiving the gift of God's love. Those are the implications that we're going to work through today, so Bow with me as we ask God's blessing upon our time together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you as a people that love you and as those who have come today to bring our worship to you, we submit ourselves under the sound of your word to do your work and to allow you to do that work in our hearts. For those of us who have a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ, Let our hearts rejoice at the sound of these words. For those of us that are possibly not yet believers, that don't quite have it all put together, that are agnostic and are are thinking towards God, may you open the eyes of the understanding so that your gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, would become clear and understood and then received. Lord, we commit all these things into your hands, the one who doeth all things well. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, the world needs a Savior. Well, as mentioned above, the world is a dark place. 
And we're seeing more and more lawlessness everywhere. It's not just in the United States. It's everywhere. Because the world is, as I mentioned in one of the previous sermons in our Advent series, lies under a blanket of sin ever since Adam and Eve sinned. And since that moment in the garden where Adam and Eve rebelled against their creator God, the world has needed a Savior. This need of a Savior is a real need. It is not just a perceived need. It's not just some kind of uh, religious ploy to get people to come and and come into a church and give money to a, a good thing. The need of the world is for a Savior. You see, at the time of Adam and Eve's sin, Satan, the arch enemy of God, usurped the world. Did you know that? In 1 John 5.19, we read, The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. You wonder why things are going the way they are going in the world? There is a ruler of this world, and his name is Satan, the devil. This isn't hobbledygook from, you know, something made up, some philosophy. This is the truth of reality of what we have and what we're dealing with. The staggering truth is that when Adam and Eve sinned, they relinquished the world to Satan. They were to reign over the earth. You do understand that. And they took their hands off of that when they turned their back on God. And they relinquished the rule of the world to Satan. Now lest you think that's a tall tale, we see this truth when the devil tempted Jesus in the wilderness. You can look at it in Matthew 4. And he showed him all the kingdoms of the world, and he said, I will give you all this domain in its glory. And you might think, well, that's outrageous. But the truth of the matter is, he goes on to say, for it has been handed over to me. It has been handed over to me, and it was handed over to him by Adam and Eve. And he said to Jesus, and I give it to whomever I wish. So if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you these kingdoms. No way. Man's fall into sin brought devastation to this world. Just look around us. The proof of the devastation is everywhere. Wars and death and disease and famine. Nature's fury raging in in the Philippines right now with cyclones. And the chaos that ensues from those things. Death, disease, murder and mayhem are everywhere. And truly, we see that the world needs a Savior. Well, Jesus is a Savior. A Savior saves. That's what a Savior does. He delivers out of trouble and out of distress. The devastation that invades the lives of men and women, families and friends, caused by sin, is able to be relieved by the Savior. Those that are strung out on drugs, those that are addicted to alcohol, pornography, infidelities, immorality, you name it. He is the Savior that is able to save from all of that. Jesus is the Savior. There is salvation in no one else. 
For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. The scripture could not be clearer. Secondly, Jesus is the savior of the world. If we've grown up in a church and we have been going to church for any length of time, we've all heard that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Some believe that the Bible teaches that God only loves the elect. They believe that the Bible teaches that Jesus died only for the elect. And some even believe that because God chose some for salvation before the foundation of the world, according to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and following, that Jesus also chose some to damnation. That's called double predestination. We do not believe the Bible teaches that. That impugns the nature of God, who is love. And if you dispute with me on that, come see me afterwards. That is not the God of the Bible. But some believe that. It's hard to explain so many passages in the Scripture that teach Jesus came for the world. The world. And that he is the Savior of the world. The apostles testified, saying, quote, The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And the Samaritans, after the woman at the well, you remember that in John 4, the woman at the well who Jesus talked to, and and then she went back to her village, and she told them about Jesus, and they said, well, we'll see about this, and they invited him to come, and for two days he went to be with them, after which time they said, we believe that Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world. And they said, not because you told us, but because we heard him speak. Even as the grace of God has already appeared, past tense, bringing salvation to the elect. No, to all men, to all men. Now, it's true that all have sinned and fallen short of what God expects of his creation, and and that all people everywhere need to have their sins taken care of. But the good news of the Bible is, is that Jesus is himself the complete satisfaction for our sins. And not only for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. God actually sent his son, Jesus, into the world so that the world might be saved through him. Now, I, I, can, I can feel your minds cranking here. Wait a second. Wait a second. Is everybody going to be saved? Is the world going to be redeemed? No, we're not universalists. We'll get to that. To believe or teach that God only sent Jesus to save the elect is not only to be on the wrong side of the Scriptures, but to also disagree with some of the most preeminent theologians of church's history. How about John Calvin? John Calvin, he believes in election predestination. Yes, he does. Listen to his words. John Calvin himself wrote regarding John 3.16. We're familiar with that. God so loved the world, okay, that he gave his only begotten son, right? Two points are distinctly stated to us. 
namely, that faith in Christ brings life to all. John Calvin. And that Christ brought life because the Father loves the human race. John Calvin. And he wishes they should not perish. He went on to add this. In John 3.16, the evangelist has employed the universal term, whosoever, both to invite all indiscriminately to partake of life and to cut off every excuse from unbelievers. Such is also the import of the term world, which he formerly used. For though nothing will be found in the world that is worthy of the favor of God, yet he shows himself to be reconciled to the whole world when he invites all, without exception, to the faith of Christ, which is nothing else than an entrance into life. That's John Calvin, where, where some people have taken Calvinism and added to Calvinism such doctrines as he only died, he only came for the elect, and, and you know we can't really have the freedom to preach the gospel Hogwash, that's not true. It's a universal call to whosoever will come. Don't ever hesitate to preach the gospel to anyone, even the most degenerate. Don't worry about it. Leave it in God's hands. Calvin went on to say a balancing comment. Let us remember, on the other hand, that while life is promised universally to all who believe in Christ, still faith is not common to all, but the elect alone are they whose eyes God opens, and they may seek him by faith. And you go, whoa, that's so hard. Yes, it is. It's a clash in our thinking, because we have finite minds we cannot understand, and yet the Scripture teaches both. It teaches both. So there's a divine tension presented in the Bible that makes our finite minds explode when we try to reconcile the tension. And usually you end up in one ditch or the other. In John 6.40 we read, And this is the will of him who sent me, Jesus speaking, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him At that last day, human responsibility is stressed here. And that passage right there, it's stressed. God is sovereign, it is true, but he works through faith. So that a person must believe in Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God who alone offers the only way of salvation. Intellectually harmonizing the sovereignty of God and human responsibility is impossible, humanly speaking. We cannot put those two together and come up to a happy solution. They clash in our finite minds, but perfectly resolved, they are in the infinite mind of God. And that's why the Scripture teaches both. What we need to take away from all this is that Jesus is the Savior of the world. The call to faith is a universal call 
to whosoever will may come. Whosoever will. And God loves the world and sent his only begotten son into it to save sinners. And all have sinned. But we know that not all will be saved. Why? Because God's election or predestination does not operate apart from, nor does it nullify people's human responsibility to believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And there's the tension. And it's also a balance. And God is completely balanced. God loves the world. But some will suppress that truth in unrighteousness, Romans chapter 1 teaches us, which is their response to the truth. (laughs) I can't bring them together for you. I can't harmonize them for you. But I can tell you that what I have just said is true, biblically. A third implication here is that God's eternal plan for salvation was put together by the Father in conjunction with the Son and the Holy Spirit before the foundation of the world, before any of this ever came into existence. So I hope I'm blowing your mind today because these are mind-blowing truths that are clear in Scripture. And and it's what motivates me to just so rejoice at Christmas. Because these are the truths that undergird the fact that we celebrate Christmas every year. Speaking of the elect, where did that idea ever come from? And does it depict the love of God or something else, maybe something less loving, which double predestination would teach? And we don't teach that at Beacon of Hope, and I don't believe the Bible does either. Before time... Before the foundation of the world, God was active within the Trinity. He laid out the plan of the ages contained in his eternal covenant. Those of you that are theologues and have some systematic theology books on your shelves, look up eternal covenant and you'll see what I'm talking about. But I'll try to give you a succinct understanding of it. Before anything existed, the Father already conceived of redemption through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. The foundation of the world is a reference to God's act of creation. But when Scripture refers to something that happened before the foundation of the world, the event under discussion occurred before anything was ever created in eternity past. Okay, here's a short idea of everything. Eternity past, time, space, continuum, eternity future. We're in the middle part, time, space, continuum. But there was something going on because God existed before everything that we understand existing existed because it says in the very first words of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If he created the heavens and the earth, it stands to reason he already existed before the existence of everything that we can relate to. Now, there are a number of passages 
in the Bible that speak of specific things that were taking place before the foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter 4 says that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Before the foundation of the world, God chose us in Jesus Christ. I didn't say that. That's not some aberrant doctrine. It's what God's word says. And in 1 Peter 1, 19 through 20, it says that Jesus Christ was like a lamb unblemished and spotless and that he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world as a lamb unblemished and spotless. Now, if you are in the men or women's Bible studies, you have learned about blue letter Bible. I challenge you to take a good time out of your day and study what the word foreknowledge means. It may shock you. It does not mean what you think it means. That should whet your appetite. I'm not going any further. Okay? And in John 17:4, we read that the Father loved the Son before the foundation of the world. The implications of that are incredible. There was relationship between persons and affection and love and communication before the foundation of the world. Our faith is not based on the big bang that is impersonal. We are much more than stardust people. We are created in the image of God for relationship with one another and with our Creator. And we should communicate with each other. And we should love one. Does that sound familiar? Love one another? Someplace in Scripture it says that. And doesn't it say that God is love? Wow. (laughs) Revelation 13.8. Here we go. The book of life of the Lamb, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. God had a plan for a Savior before the foundation of the world. He was slain before the foundation of the world. The Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. Fourthly, the Father's gift to Jesus You see, expanding on that plan of redemption, that eternal covenant put in place before the foundation of the world, we need to mark out the wonderful truth of a father's love gift to his son. God's love is most amazingly displayed in a time before time when he made an eternal promise. Titus 1 says that as the epistle opens, that God made a promise long ages ago, which could be translated and means in the hope of eternal life, which God cannot lie, he made a promise before the foundations of the world. Long ages ago is comparable to before the foundations of the world. Before time began. 
And it's really the eternal covenant according to the writer of Hebrews in 13.20, Hebrews 13.20. And it was made between the Father and the Son in eternity past when the Father promised the Son a redeemed humanity. Now we're getting somewhere, right? Clouseau, if you didn't catch that. Now we're getting somewhere. A redeemed humanity. Humanity had not yet been created. And yet God, the Father, promised the Son a love gift of a redeemed humanity. What am I talking about? Well, God, because he loved the Son, said, I want to give you a love gift. I want to express my love to you, and I'm going to give you a redeemed humanity. And he elected that redeemed humanity in eternity past, And then he asked the Son to come into the world to do the redeeming act to gather that humanity. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. But it was the Father's love gift to the Son to redeem humanity. And Jesus did it, but it was the Father who gave redeemed humanity to the Son in eternity past to give them to Christ, to give us to Christ, to give the church, the body, the bride to Christ so that forever and ever through all eternity we will praise and glorify him. This may help you to better understand the language of John 6. John chapter 6 is a wonderful chapter and there's much said about how people are to believe in him whom the Father has sent In John 6, 37, it says very clearly, Jesus speaking, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. And again in verse 39, it says, That of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on that last day. When did the Father give the Son the gift of ones who would come to him? Have you ever thought about that? When when was that transaction? When did that transaction take place? When did the Father give those to Jesus and the promise that he will not lose even one of those that were given by the Father? to the Son. When did all that take place? Well, the Father gave believers the redeemed humanity to Christ before the foundation of the world as his love gift to the Son. If you start grasping this, it has to humble you. (laughs) I mean, we're caught in between eternity past and eternity future in this time-space continuum That has a beginning and it has an end. God does not. Eternity past and eternity present. And you start to realize just how small we are. And then you should just absolutely freak out if I can use that word. Okay? Sorry, I'm a child of the 60s and 70s, but mind-blowing, right? He loves you. He loves you. 
and he gave himself for you. He calls us his friends, people. He calls us his friends. He died for you so that all your sins could be forgiven so that you could spend all eternity with him in heaven. Oh, my. You see, Jesus, this is interesting, okay? The Father's love gift to Jesus turns into Jesus' love gift to believers, doesn't it? The Father's love gift to Jesus turns into Jesus' love gift to believers. No one has greater love than this, than what? To lay down his life for his friends, John 15, 13. So Jesus is the gift of the Father to us in love, even as we are the Father's love gift to the Son. Do you get that? We are the body of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. We are the redeemed humanity that the Father gave to the Son before the foundation of the world. And then Jesus provides eternal life for us through his death, burial, and resurrection. We're a part of that redeemed humanity if we placed our faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross. If we don't suppress that truth in unrighteousness. In eternity past, the Father chose the elect. In time, he redeems them through the provision of Jesus Christ on the cross. And in eternity, he gathers them together as that redeemed humanity and gives them in total, completed body, Christ's bride, the church, to the Son as those who will glorify him forever and ever. Now wait, at which point the Son, having received the gift in total, turns around and gives it back to the Father so that God may be all in all. That's from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. At the end of everything, when it's all done, Jesus turns and gives back to the Father the love gift that the Father gave to him so that God may be all in all. (laughs) Wow. And in all of this, we see the love of God, right? The love of God. Now, it's no surprise that a gift is not received is not a gift at all. I mean, just think, especially at this time of Christmas, you know, and, and, and we're all aware of the tradition of gift giving. And, and imagine if you put a lot of time into discovering just what someone you really loved, wanted, or needed. You know, I heard a long time ago, and sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. I heard a long time ago that if you want to get your wife a lovely presence that she will really love, listen to her throughout the year. She will tell you what she wants. It'll come, but so many of us are thick and dull. And, you know, it's a week before Christmas. What can I get her? You know? We ended up buying her a, a chainsaw or a pickup truck with a bow. Come on, this is beautiful, honey. So you, you really put a lot of time into discovering just what someone really 
that you really love wants or needs, and you, you asked everyone around them, and you listened to hints from your loved one throughout the year, and finally you figure it out, and you decide what you're going to do, and you get it, and then you did everything that you needed to do to secure the gift and, and, and went to great lengths to prepare everything. It's wrapped beautifully, and it's just right. And finally, you have the opportunity to present this most precious gift to your loved one, but they turn away and refuse to receive the gift from you. Beloved, that is suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. The love gift of God to us is Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. In order for the gift to be enjoyed, it has to be received. This is the true love gift of God. A gift prepared for people from before the foundation of the world. A gift of eternal life. The forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. But so many turn away and refuse to receive this most precious gift, eternal life. It was so in Jesus' day because we read in John 1, he was in the world, he being Messiah, Jesus, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, Israel, and those who were his own, Israel, did not receive him. The prophet Isaiah prophesied about the rejection of the gift of life through Jesus Christ, saying he was despised and forsaken. To despise something means to not give it a lot of thought, to think very little of something or someone. And forsaken means to turn away from. He was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised. We did not esteem him. We did not esteem him. Each of us has turned to his own way, rather than to the gift of the love of God, Jesus Christ. How tragic to have the gift of God's love, eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord, rejected by so many John 1.12 tells us how people should really respond to the unspeakable gift of the forgiveness of sins. It says this, But as many as received him, to them, those who responded by reception, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those, and this translates what receive means even to those who believe in him. So receiving the gift of God's love, my sixth implication. The sermon today is titled The Love of God, and and we started out with this truth that Jesus is the Savior of the world, and the world was thrown into chaos and darkness through the sin of one man, Adam, but none of this took God by surprise, and I hope you've caught that. None of this took God by surprise, as though some strange and unexpected thing had taken place. If it were so, he would not be the God of the Bible, would he? He knows the end from the beginning because he is the Alpha and Omega. God is omniscient, which is a great big word that simply means he knows everything. He is all-knowing. 
John 20, 31 is an example of receiving this gift of God's love when it says, but these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in him. It's all in the present tense. You can actually have life right now in him. Now, this is really important. Receiving is believing. You young ones out there listening to me, this is how you appropriate and take the gospel of Jesus Christ to yourself. This is how you become a Christian, a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what you need to do with the truth that Jesus Christ was given by the Father, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. You want eternal life? This is how. Listen to me. Faith is knowing that passes into conviction. You can't just have a head knowledge that Jesus died for your sins. It's got to become part of your belief structure, part of your life. And then conviction passes into confidence. When you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, and it becomes a conviction of yours, then it becomes your confidence. Then you can say that you know that you have eternal life. Faith cannot stop short of self-commitment to Christ. A transference of reliance upon ourselves and all human resources to a reliance upon Christ alone for salvation is what believing and receiving actually means. It's relying upon him and not ourselves in any way, shape, or form. And here's a hint to those that struggle with assurance. If it's all about relying on what he has done, how can you be insecure if you truly rely on everything he's done? It's not about you. It's about him. Your faith isn't just good because it's faith. It's not good just because you believe. It's what you believe in, and what you believe in is a person, and his name is Jesus Christ, and he was real in time and history, and he did something on Calvary, which was die on the cross, and three days he rose from the dead as an affirmation of the Father that he paid for your sins on the death on the cross. And once you grab hold of that and say you believe it, then you yield your life over to him. How can it be anything less? It's receiving and resting on him. As one Sunday school acrostic summarizes it, and I like this, faith is forsaking all, I take him. The first letters of those words spell faith. Forsaking all, I take him. A lot of people in churches that have not forsaken all, but they think they've taken him. And their lives show it because they come to church on Sunday, and that's about it, right? That conviction isn't there. That confidence isn't there. Well, maybe they need to go back to what true faith really is. Forsaking all, I take him. You replace yourself with him. And so we read in 1 John 5, 12, right? He who has, present tense, the Son, has, present tense, the life. He who does not have, present tense, the Son, 
of God does not have, present tense, the life. And these things I have written to you, John wrote, who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know, present tense, know that you have, present tense, eternal life. I have eternal life. It happened over 40 years ago. And talk about blowing somebody's mind. It did. But I know that I have eternal life. That's called the sin of assumption in the Catholic Church. It's a mortal sin. (laughs) And yet the Scriptures teach it in 1 John. Do you want to know that you have eternal life? Then you must exercise faith. Forsake all. Take him. There must be this sacred transference, all of me for all of him. Now, there may be some here today that have been in church for a long time, and you're hearing this, and it's resonating with you for the first time. It's really resonating with your heart. I implore you, repent and trust Christ today. Don't worry about it. Humble yourself, even if you've been a Christian, quote, unquote, for 20, 30 years. Humble yourself and say, thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. Make the transference. And then you can know that you have eternal life. (laughs) I tell you what, that changes everything. Well, the love of God is Jesus Christ come into the world. Which truth celebrates Christmas. The Savior of the world for all who turn from trusting in themselves and turn to him. Trusting what he has done and who he is And that is, it means to receive the most precious gift of God's love, Jesus Christ. So with that, I just want to wish everybody here Merry Christmas, Beacon of Hope. Merry Christmas to all who are watching this on the live feed. May you all have the assurance of eternal life through receiving God's gift of love today. And if you have already done that, then let me see you smile. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the far reaches of your word all the way back into eternity past and all the way forward into eternity future. God, if we have made that transaction where we have given all of ourselves over to you to do whatsoever you will to do with us, We have eternal life right now, and our futures are bright. No matter what we face on this earth, no matter the turmoil and the frustrations and the struggles and the illnesses and the disappointments, Lord, this earth is filled with them, but we have an eternal future of bliss, pleasures evermore at your right hand because of Jesus Christ. Thank you, we pray in his name. Amen.